Just real quick, I uh, did a proper introduction for Dr. George yesterday, but want to remind uh, those students who will be having lunch with Dr. George, uh, you will go through the Great Hall, get your meal like normal, uh, there should be a checklist and you will just take your tray or take your food uh, down to the consultation room uh, at the end of Carter. So um, directly after this, go to the Great Hall, get your food, and then we'll meet down there. With that said, please join me in welcoming Dr. Timothy George. Uh, good morning, everybody. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be leaving today because I'm going home. And I'm going to see my six-month-old grandson, my one and only grandchild. His name is Philo. You know that name? Philo Gabriel Kim. And I'm looking forward to seeing him. But I've enjoyed being here with you, meeting so many of you. Uh, we started with uh, Tyndale, uh, then Luther yesterday, and now we're concluding with Erasmus. You all know what a blessing you have in these wonderful stained glass windows. So many of these characters I've talked about are here. There's Luther up there. Uh, I didn't talk about him much, but Calvin, I think, is over there. Uh, Tyndale, I believe, is up there, that right corner of that top window. I think that's Tyndale. Um, Wycliffe may be somewhere around. You've got an interesting group of people surrounding you here in this chapel. But you know who's not there? Erasmus. There's not a trace of Erasmus anywhere in these windows. Why is that? Well, probably some good reasons, and I want to talk about Erasmus because he is a very important figure that we need to know about. You really can't understand the others I've been talking about, Luther, Tyndale, without understanding something about Erasmus. 502 years ago, this spring, it was 1516, a printer in Basel, Switzerland, named Johann Froben, published a little volume titled in Latin, Novum Instrumentum. It was the first critical edition of the Greek New Testament. It was a pivotal moment in the history of biblical scholarship and in the history of the Reformation. And while a lot of attention the last year or so has been paid to Martin Luther, rightly so, I mean, Luther is a volcano. You have to pay attention to him. We wouldn't even begin to talk about Luther's significance for the Reformation without there being, first of all, an Erasmus. Who was he? What made him tick? And why was this 1516 project of the Greek New Testament so crucial among his many other scholarly and literary activities? How does Erasmus' Greek New Testament fit into his distinctive vision of the Christian life? I want to try to answer some of those questions in the few minutes that we have together. Well, what was his name? Desiderius Erasmus. That was kind of the name he gave himself. Uh, we sometimes call him after the place where he was born, Erasmus of Rotterdam, because he was a Dutchman. Or sometimes, thinking more broadly, Erasmus of Christendom. Because in some ways, Erasmus, more than anybody else, I think, is the father of Europe, 
of the European community, as we call it today. This idea that you can go anywhere within Europe without showing a passport. Now, when I first began to go to Europe years ago, that was unheard of. You had to check your passport wherever you were going from country to country, the way it is most other places in the world. And, of course, you had different currencies. Now it's the euro. Who first thought of that idea? Erasmus. He wanted there to be a common pan-European culture and society that would weld Europeans together into a single political cultural unity. That wasn't the most important idea he had, but it was one. Well, his impact on the Reformation, on religious renewal in general in the 16th century, was enormous, even though he never left the Catholic Church nor became a Protestant. Much less did he found a new religious order or a new denomination, unlike Luther or Calvin or Cranmer in England or the Anabaptist Menno Simons. Erasmus did none of these things. How can we think about him then? How can we, why do we remember him? Well, the French, you know, leap to the French to invent a word for something. So they, they've invented a word in the 20th century to describe what I'm talking about. Erasmianism. Erasmianism, in French, refers to a kind of cultural and spiritual force a distinctive ethos or spirit generated by the life and work of Desiderius Erasmus. More a mood than a movement. Because Erasmus cannot be pinned down in usual institutional or denominational ways. He lived at the confluence of the two great movements of that era. We call them the Renaissance and the Reformation and he felt deeply the tensions inherent in both. He had a great influence on Luther. In fact, they they invented a saying in his own day, Erasmus laid the egg that Luther hatched. Now, that was meant as a kind of cutting jibe against, but there's a lot of truth in it. When somebody told Erasmus what they were saying, he laid the egg that Luther hatched, he said, Well, yes, uh, that may be true, uh, but I'm not responsible for Luther's chickens. Uh, They're his business, not mine. What did Erasmus look like? If he were here today instead of me, what would he look like? Well, according to his biographer, a man named Beatus Renanus, Erasmus had a fair complexion, light blonde hair, bluish-gray eyes, and a pleasant expression. He was winsome, reticent, a bit shy, understated in his appearance, brilliant in conversation. He had arched eyebrows, a wry smile, and was always ready with a joke, a good story, to liven the repartee. Early in his life, he had lived in a monastery, say a word about that in a minute, but that had left him with a delicate constitution, which was made worse when he went to the University of Paris to study, where he had to eat the horrible cafeteria food, not like yours, let me say, 
I've had good food here at Covenant, but back in Paris in those days it was terrible. Uh, rotten eggs, salt herring, which gave him nausea. And later in his life he would refer back to those horrible conditions in Paris and explain some of his physical ailments as a result of that. Well, as he got older and more famous and richer, he didn't have to put up with that anymore. And nothing could please Erasmus more than a cozy dinner by a warm fire with good friends and a flask of well-aged imported wine. Imported from Crete, that was his favorite kind. Well, let's back up a couple of years from 1516 when his Greek New Testament came out in Basel to 1514. And we find Erasmus in this year on the move. He's been living in England for a while. Remember I said how he was all over Europe all the time, it seems. He was in England. But now he's on his way to Basel. In fact, he's going to Basel to put in place the plans for publishing that Greek New Testament. Erasmus was always on the move, though. He was a migratory scholar. He was the original flying Dutchman. Uh, and he traveled all over Europe looking for manuscripts talking to printers, cultivating the friendship of other humanist scholars. And wherever you would go, Deventer, Antwerp, Louvain, Basel, Brussels, Florence, Venice, Rome, Paris, Oxford, Cambridge, London, there were FOEs there, friends of Erasmus. He once said, if Ulysses was the wisest man in Greece because he visited so many cities, my horse is the wisest in Europe because he's been to so many universities. Well, one of those universities was Cambridge. That's where he had been staying in England. When you go to Cambridge today, you can visit Queen's College. That's where Erasmus lived during those years. And they will show you a room. It's called the Erasmus Room, where they say, by tradition, Erasmus lived and where he was actually working on some of the scholarship that would end up in his 1516 Greek New Testament. But he didn't like Cambridge. The food was bad, the Cambridgeshire beer was undrinkable, and the wine he had ordered from Crete had been pilfered and spilled before it could be delivered to him. He was not a happy, happy camper. But those years were very productive and he worked furiously on both the Greek New Testament and another major project that he had under work at the same time. And that was a critical edition of the letters of St. Jerome. Now, who was St. Jerome? He was a great scholar in the early church who had translated the Bible into Latin, the Vulgate edition of the Bible. He was one of Erasmus's heroes. In fact, in some ways, I think Erasmus saw himself as St. Jerome come back to life again in the 16th century. But now in the summer of 1514, he is once again on the road traveling, or rather on the river, traveling through the Rhine Valley from England to Basel. He's a hero. Everywhere he stops along the way, people know his name. They stop and they entertain him and they want to give him a great reception. And he's kind of a celebrity. In some ways you could say Erasmus was the first European celebrity. Wherever he went, people knew his name. They knew something about him. They wanted to spend time with him. If he were alive today, he would no doubt be interviewed on The View. 
I don't know what they would say, but uh, he was so famous they would want to have him on their show. You know what? Erasmus knew this. He knew how famous he was. He once said, It is I, as cannot be denied, who have aroused the study of languages and good letters, bonae literae, good letters. I have brought academic theology too much subjected to sophistic contrivances back to the sources of the holy books and the study of the ancient orthodox authors. I have exerted myself to awaken a world slumbering in Pharisaic ceremonies, awaken that world to true piety. Well, among the many virtues of Erasmus, and there were many, Humility, perhaps, was not the greatest. Well, um, in April of 1517, think about that year, April of 1517, six months, almost exactly, before Luther would post his 95 theses on the castle church door at Wittenberg, setting off the alarms of the Reformation, Erasmus wrote a letter to the Pope now, he knew the Pope. He knew the Pope before he was the Pope. He was one of the great Medici uh, figures of that period in Italy, wealthy, cultured, influential. As Pope, he took the name Leo X. And Erasmus had known him, and he wrote to Leo X a letter, and he said, if ever there was a golden age, then there is good hope that ours will be one. He believed himself to be living at the edge of a golden age, about to dawn into a new, brilliant future. Not only did Erasmus know the Pope, Leo X, he knew all the great political figures of the day. Henry VIII in England would often be entertained at his court, along with his friend Sir Thomas More. Francis I, the King of France, and Charles of Burgundy, who was soon to become the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V. These three great lions of Europe all knew Erasmus and were solicitous of his favor and company. And so he had reason to hope, maybe, that this is a golden age about to dawn, and I'm playing a role in the revival of letters to bring it about. But, alas, it was not to be. Soon these three young potentates of Europe who held Erasmus so dear would be at war with one another. Erasmus caught right in the middle of it all. Soon an earthquake, I called him a volcano, we could call him an earthquake, named Martin Luther, would shake the foundations of church and society. Thirteen years after the publication of his Greek New Testament in Basel, Erasmus was forced to flee the city, Basel, that he had come to love. Why? Because religious violence, iconoclasm, had broken out. There were fistfights and bloody heads in the streets. And near the end of his life, Erasmus had changed his tune. No longer was he referring to this as the dawn of a golden age? But he says, I'm living in the worst century since Jesus Christ. 
Now, from the perspective of 500 years later, we might argue with him about which is the worst century since Jesus Christ. But Erasmus had turned to be almost bitter in his assessment of the world all around him. Now, if I had a title for this talk, it would be The Glory, The Grandeur, and The Failure of Erasmus. There is something glorious and grand about Erasmus and about his project to revive the ancient languages, to bring out the New Testament in its pristine purity in the Greek, to promote its reading throughout Europe. He did all of that, and there's something wonderful and grand about it. But at the same time, there is a failure about Erasmus because his ideas were not able to reshape the world in which he lived. And he became, as he grew older, more bitter at all of this. Now, I think this is partly exp explained by his biography. Now, I'm not much of one who uh, tries to psycho-historicize creatures from the past. I mean, it's hard enough to do that with people living right there on your couch. You go back 500 years, we just don't have the evidence. It's a risky... But if you were to try to psycho-historicize Erasmus, uh, what would you come up with? Well, you would discover that there was a cloud over his life. Uh, from really the time he was born. Because he was born an illegitimate son of a Dutch priest. Now... That's an issue today when it happens, but nothing like it was back then. First of all, priests, whether they were Dutch or French or English, should not be having kids, right? They're celibate. But this priest had kind of forgotten his vows of celibacy and had a son, Erasmus. Actually, had a couple of sons. Erasmus had a brother named Peter. And both of these were illegitimate children of this Dutch and this created a cloud over his life. What it meant, in effect, that he could never go home. He had no home. He had no family that would embrace him and welcome him back. And in order to cover up this scandal, that's what it was in those days, he lied about the year of his birth. He backdated the year of his birth from 1469 back to 1466 so that the records would not show his illegitimacy. Not only that, in his early years he was faced with the reality of death in, a, in an amazing way. Within the space of a few months both of his parents were swept away in the plague the bubonic plague that still in the 16th century was active in Europe. He was 13 years old when that happened. You know how important 13 years is in a person's life. It's a turning point, the beginning of adolescence. This is when Erasmus lost both his mother and his father. And he also lost, in that same episode of the plague, 20 of his fellow students. Can you imagine a 13-year-old standing at the grave of 20 of his fellow students who had been carried away in the plague? I think this partly explains the timidity of Erasmus. Uh, there is a weakness of spirit about him. There is a faint-heartedness about him. 
that he carries with him all the rest of his life. But now he did enter the monastery. He, he entered the monastery because he was told to. He was a boy. His parents were dead. He had to do, live somewhere. And so the monks took him in. He never liked the monastery, even though he became a monk of sorts. The one thing about the monastery he did like was the library. They had a great library. Monasteries often do. And he would sneak away when he should have been working in the fields or saying his prayers like monks ought to do. He would sneak away from his monastic duties and go and read books in the library. Well, on one occasion, he took one of those books from the shelf, one of the books he should not have taken from the shelf, and sneaked it out of the library and took it back to his room, to his little cubicle where his bed was, and was reading it under the covers at night. He was discovered doing that. What book was it? St. Augustine's Confessions. So one of the figures who would influence Erasmus throughout his life was Augustine. Somebody said, Luther entered the monastery in order to save his soul by good works. Erasmus entered the monastery in order to enlighten his mind by good books. Especially Erasmus, love of Augustine, of Origen, that was another great early church father he loved. Jerome, I've already mentioned him. He would read all of these great figures, and it shaped his life. Now, because I just have a few minutes left, I want to I mention uh, a couple of figures. I'm just going to mention their names. You're going to have to go read about them on yourself. But they had a great influence on Erasmus, and they're worthy of your attention. One of them was John Collett. He was from England. And he was lecturing on Paul's letters at Oxford when Erasmus showed up as a visitor in his class. And Collett became a kind of mentor, in a way, to Erasmus. It was Collett who said to Erasmus, you don't need to waste so much time dealing only with the great classical figures of antiquity. You need to focus on the Bible. You need to focus on the Scriptures. And so he became a great advocate of what Erasmus would call the philosophy of Christ, philosophia Christi, based on a close reading of the Bible, a program of educational and moral reform aimed both at the individual but also at society and based on the recovery of classical letters, especially Greek and Latin. Now, Erasmus knew a little bit of Hebrew, not very much. He was not a great Hebraist. He was a great Greek scholar and, of course, a wonderful Latin scholar. And this is where he said we can find wisdom in order to shape our personal life and also the life of the world around us. He says, it's not just external things. Don't tell me, he says, that you go to church all the time and prostrate yourself before the images of the saints and you burn candles and you say a number of prayers. God has no need of this, Erasmus says. Paul defines love as to edify one's neighbor, to lead all to become members of the same body, to consider all one in Christ, and to rejoice concerning a brother's good fortune in the Lord, just as concerning your own, to heal his hurt as well as your own. That was his aim. That was his effort. 
And so Collett had a great influence on him. Lorenzo Valla, he had long been dead by the time Erasmus was publishing this stuff, but he was a great scholar who taught people how to read ancient texts, how to compare various wordings and readings in the manuscripts. Erasmus learned that lesson, and it really shaped and changed his life more than anything else. So that he says, this is not just for scholars. This is not just for the learned in the universities. This is also for the common people. They should have the scriptures in their own hands and read them with their own eyes. The third person I wanted to mention was Petrarch. He was another great figure of the Renaissance, long dead. But Petrarch is the one who says, when we study the past, we have to realize the difference between the past and now. And we have to understand that we, we go on a journey, in a way, to learn a different language, to imbibe a different culture when we study the past. It was Petrarch who invented history, the study of history, the way we do it today. Erasmus learned from all of these great figures. And he said, it's for everybody. I would even that the lowliest women read the Gospels. This is a time when women were not educated. That was a great advance. Luther, he established schools for boys and girls in Germany. He was a great Erasmian when he did that because Erasmus said women also, as well as men, should be able to take the Bible and read the Gospels and read the Pauline letters. Indeed, he says, I would that they were translated into all languages so that they could be read and understood not only by Scots and Irish. Why do you mention those people? The Scots. He's not talking about you people here at Covenant. He's talking about the people who lived in Scotland and Ireland because these were at the extremities of Europe. You couldn't go any further than Ireland. You'd be out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And Scotland, the North Pole, the very extreme places, they should be able to read the Bible. And also by the Turks and the Saracens. The Turks were, of course, the Muslims, who were a fierce fighting force in the 16th century, but had a great civilization in the East. What about them? They, too, should be able to read the Scriptures. Would that, as a result, the farmer would sing of them at the plow. The weaver hummed some parts of them to the movement of his shuttle. The traveler lightened the weariness of his journey with stories from the scriptures. Well, um, I said there was a failure about Erasmus. It comes in his uh, conflict with Martin Luther. Uh, early on, Erasmus said good things about Luther. He applauded a lot of the stuff Luther was saying in protest against medieval Catholicism because he had made the same protest before Luther. But then, as he came to understand more clearly the core of Luther's theology, especially his understanding of the sovereignty of divine grace, the doctrine of predestination, uh, he came to disagree strongly with Luther. And they had a great exchange, 1524 and 25. Erasmus started the fight. He wrote a book called On the Freedom of the Will. Luther responded with a huge tort on the bondage of the will. And after that great clash over the doctrine of election and predestination, those two great protagonists of the 16th century never wrote or spoke to one another again. And to some extent, after that divide, Reformation on the one hand and humanism on the other, Luther and Erasmus 
went their separate ways. Well, the failure of Erasmus is reflected in his growing lack of optimism, the gloom that settles over his life, the worst century since Jesus Christ. From Basel, he, he died in Basel in 1536. By the way, at the same time, another young scholar had just come to Basel and published his first theological work. His name was John Calvin, 1536, same city, Basel. But in that year, he wrote to Willibon Perkheimer, a friend, Erasmus' friend, and he said this, Peace is perishing. Love and faith and learning and morality and civilized behavior, what is left? And so he ends his life in gloom. He ends his life recognizing that there is very little left of the dream that I once had. But the Erasmian moment, if we can call it that, outlived Erasmus because both Martin Luther and William Tyndale, the other two reformers I've talked about in this lecture series, both of them had at their side copies of the Greek New Testament, Erasmus Greek New Testament, the second edition from 1519, as they labored to Verdeutschen and to English, God's word to the farmers, the plowboys, the prostitutes, everybody, men, women, children, Irish and Scots, Saracens and Turks, to give them the word of God in a language they could read for themselves. The debate between Erasmus and Luther on the bondage of the will did result in a breaking, a parting of the ways, but the torch had been passed to a new generation of reformers for whom the studia humanitatis, the study of the humanities, and the theologia crucis, the theology of the cross that Luther had advanced, would become central in the renewal of the church. And one of those people was that young man who was studying in Basel in 1536, John Calvin. Well, Erasmus died, and he's buried today. You can go and see his grave in the great cathedral of Basel. He's still honored in some ways. At the very end, Erasmus' final words were murmured, not in the classical languages that he knew so well, Latin, Greek, a little bit of Hebrew, but rather in his native Dutch. And I think, you know, we pay attention to the last words people say before they die. Often enough, they say something important about who they are and what is dearest to them. And so Erasmus reverted back to the language he first learned from his mother. Remember, he was the illegitimate son of a Dutch priest and a Dutch mother. And he uttered just two words in the Dutch language words he must have heard from his mother in Holland. Lieve God, in Dutch. Oh, dear God. I think it was a prayer. I think it was a plea. I think it was a supplication at the end of a long and enormously productive life to recognize that in the very last moment we are all alike 
and we can only prostrate ourselves before God and give ourselves to Him, seeking His mercy, His grace, His forgiveness. Liefer Gott. Oh, dear Gott. Thank you very much.